Hi, I'm Blake Gilman, the Vice President, Director of Post-Acute Care Services at LCS. You're listening to the Healthcare Highwire. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Highwire. I'm your host today, Laura Franco, Vice President, Director of Post-Acute Regulatory Strategy for Life Care Services. And I'm back today with my colleagues, Bryce Williams, Information Security Engineer for LCS, and Sean Williams, Director of Information Security and the HIPAA Security Privacy Officer for LCS. So welcome back, gentlemen. Thanks, Laura. It's good to be back. Likewise. Glad to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, in our last session, we talked about cybersecurity on a big picture. We we defined, not we, you all defined what cybersecurity is and really walked us through the importance. It was pretty evident to me that there's a lot that happens in the world of cybersecurity. And so we want to dive a little deeper today. And again, reminding our listeners that the reason we're doing this series right now is because October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So we want to bring a bigger security awareness, not only to our colleagues in our company and our community employees, but also to the general public. Because as I've been working with the two of you and listening and learning more and more, it's something that we need to really continue to have right in front of us every day because we're living in this technological world now. And it's just getting more and more and more complex. So we're going to talk about trends today. I know that I've learned some buzzwords and I see these buzzwords in the news and I read them and things pop up online. And some of the biggest buzzwords are malware. And I think that one's been around for a while, as long as I can remember back when computers started or when consumers started using computers. And the other one is phishing spelled P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, not F-I-S-H-I-N-G. So I'm going to toss it over to you, Bryce, and maybe you can talk about what those mean specifically and why that's important and why we should be paying attention to this and what we should be doing, if anything, about malware and phishing. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, so malware is a pretty broad term that has been around for a long time. It's generally used to describe any form of malicious software, hence the malware. It can be, uh, there's a number of specific kinds of malware out there. There's like Trojans, there's viruses, there's ransomware, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes. And phishing is not specifically malware, but it can be used to infect systems with malware. The other, I guess, the, the main thing about phishing is that it's spelled P-H. Or the, what I did, I did some research a few years ago, and I learned that the P-H stands for password harvesting. And it, most of the time, it, it, phishing has also become a broader term used in, for a number of different attacks in the industry. But it is often used, kind of started as a, a way to trick people into giving up usernames and passwords. Well, that's really interesting. I learned something today, a brand new term, password harvesting. So that kind of makes a lot more sense to me than phishing, (laughs) you know, when you break it down like that. Okay, they're coming after my passwords, right? Yes. But again, it has become a little bit broader in scope as attacks have evolved. 
phishing is now, I think, a pretty broad term for really any email attack. Other examples of phishing that aren't specific to trying to steal your passwords are maybe a gift card scam where someone's pretending to be the CEO and I need like a $100 iTunes gift card or something. That one's a pretty common one. There's a few like IRS scams that may occur over, over email that I think we generally call phishing attacks. So I, so, so Bryce, I just got a call on my cell phone. Um, it was from a number I didn't recognize, so I didn't answer it. Um, and, but they left a voicemail. They said they were the Social Security Administration and that I needed to call. Would you describe that as phishing or would you describe that as malware? Or would you describe that as just like, good thing you didn't answer, Laura, because it would have been stupid if you had? <laughs> well, um, I would. Uh, so phishing, the term phishing has been uh, reused with slight variations for kind of different forms, like maybe non-email based forms of that same type of attack where someone's trying to get you to do something, right? Which is called social engineering. And so a phone call is usually called or referred to as vishing or voice phishing. And then if you've gotten text messages, I've seen some common ones are like, click here to get a month of free Netflix or something like that. That is usually referred to as smishing or SMS text message phishing. Wow. So you, you just gave us a whole bunch of new terms. So, all right. So <laughs> I'm just a little surprised with all this. So it's very, very specific. Let's go back to email because I know I took us a little bit out of our circle here, but it's very interesting. And I'm sure our listeners are interested in this too. So I just wrote down all these new terms. Just because, just because they're brand new, and maybe we should we should know these just in general, you know. So anyway, if not, if not, they'd make a really good conversation at the next family picnic or something like that. So so let's go back to phishing from email that you know we're concerned with at LCS and a lot of other companies are right. What if I get an email from someone inside the company that sends me emails all the time and they just happen to have a link in it and maybe they don't always send me a link, but sometimes they do and it might take me to a document on the box site or some other document internally that we need to go to, but there's a link there. What should I ask them if it's legitimate? When should I ask them if it's not legitimate? How do I know it's them? Yeah, Lauren, if I can take that one, Bryce made a a very critical differentiator there between malware and phishing, and that is social engineering. So with social engineering, the attacker is trying to get the person to do something for them. And, you know, especially when you're talking about phishing, they are sending you an email and basically preying on your weaknesses or your routine or your, your goodwill to to try and get something done. And anytime you see an email that's that's kind of out of the ordinary, if you don't normally see email from that person, if you don't normally see see links in that email, it's always a great idea to confirm with that person that that email has been sent by them. And usually verbally is the best way to do that because there are other ways to, you know, spoof text messages, spoof emails and things like that. So uh, you know, if, if, if all else f- 
fails, if any, if you're ever in doubt, just pick up the phone and call that person. Hey, did you send this to me? And that's a, a great way to verify the legitimacy of that email. So what happens if I click on that link, Sean, and then I go, uh oh, I shouldn't have clicked on that link. What do I yep. do then? If you are part of an organization that has an information security team, <laughs> it's always a good idea to reach out to them. If you, you ever have any question that you did something wrong, you clicked on a link that was bad, you know, always reach out to your InfoSec team. But in general, if you click on a link and it, let's say it's a login page for something, you know, through Box or whatever, as long as you didn't enter your credentials, you're usually okay, but you know, with the caveats that there are other ways to send malicious code and things to your browser and your computer. So again, that little incident response uh, awareness, if, if you see something, say something, don't keep it to yourself, let your InfoSec team know, and we'll be happy to take a look at it for you. Okay. Okay. That's helpful. That's very helpful. So when we're talking about systems and access to systems, should we be turning our computers off every night? What's a general rule? If I leave my computer on at night, does that leave me exposed that something could come in when I'm not in front of it? Or is that not involved here? Is that a so, whole different subject? <laughs> yeah, so I have some very specific thoughts on that, but I'm actually going to let Bryce take this one. Now I want to know where your thoughts are. <laughs> um, so, Laura, I would say there's probably not a specific security reason that you have to shut down your computer every night. Sean is nodding his head now. <laughs> no, I'm agree I'm actually agreeing with you. That's a really good question. Uh, and that's one we actually get quite often. I mean, there are some things that could happen if you left your computer on 24 seven, but not just it would be more related to allowing malware to run or giving a malicious actor the opportunity to take over your computer. But just the act of leaving your computer on is not necessarily itself a threat or an issue. Yeah, and I, and I can add a little bit to that. So back in the day when your PC used to look like a mini fridge sitting next to your desk, and the power supply itself was as big as most modern computers, there were certainly reasons to not leave that thing running 24-7. Heat, energy consumption, all that were, were certainly issues. Now, they are so efficient. You're drawing very little power, using very little energy. And to me, the most important reason to keep your machine on 24-7 is patching. Because with most modern OSs, Patching is built into them. If you know, if you tell Windows, "Hey, I want you to patch at 3 a.m." or or tell your Mac to just, "Yeah, go ahead and automatically update my system," they'll do it. And and that's probably the best reason to keep your machine on is because during the wee hours of the morning when you're asleep, they can be doing things like security updates and software patches, and that is actually beneficial to keeping you safe. Okay, that's really good information. That's good to know. Good to know. So let's go to something that's been in the news a lot recently, and that's the ransomware. So password harvesting and social engineering are more, I'm going to, I'm going to say a little more passive and tell me if I'm wrong. I'm, this is just my, my definition as I'm looking at this, 
but ransomware seems to be much more active on the attacker's side. Is is that a good way to put that before we get into ransomware? Or should I detract that question altogether no, no, that's and start actually, over again? I mean, that is actually a good, a good question. And I was actually going to let Bryce answer that, but now you got me. So it really depends. As with any of these threats, there are different what we call attack vectors or threat vectors where a malicious entity, an attacker can access your system to make things happen. Sometimes that's actual what we would call hacking, using a vulnerability to, to breach a system, to install some software, to install some code, and then you know run something like ransomware where you get all your files encrypted. Sometimes that's clicking on a browser link. Sometimes that's giving up your email credentials through a phishing attack. There's just so many different ways that you can get to that point. It's really hard to say that it's any more active or less active a threat because there's different ways to go about it. So in ransomware, that that applies then, Sean and Bryce, that applies then that somebody wants you to take action and, and pay something, right? They want you to pay something. So are these ransomware villains, are they successful at what they do? Yeah, Laura, that's another really good question. And the way that a attacker would force you to engage, as opposed to phishing, which is a little more passive, because it's usually like they send you an email, and then they wait for you to decide to click on the email link. right? But ransomware is a little different, because they are actually holding your systems hostage, as in you can't log in, you can't use it, you can't access your files until you pay. And that's how they force you to engage with them. There are some strains of ransomware where there's already been like a public decryption key made available that you could avoid having to work with the attacker, but those are not very common. And the attackers usually know that there's a public decryption key available. And so they switch what type of ransomware that they're using. They're not dumb. This is their full-time job. They're, they're running a successful business, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And these, these attacks are very successful because there's a lot of organizations that don't necessarily have a very mature either security program, or maybe they do have a mature security program, but just one crack in the armor can you know allow some ransomware to take hold in in the network and then it can spread and usually the attacker again this is their full-time job like they know what they're doing they know what they're about and so they will intentionally be quiet or as they're exploring the network they're not trying to set off any alarm bells because they know that uh, especially a larger organization probably has some security staff that's looking for signs of suspicious activity. So they'll wait until they're ready to like push the button and then they will they'll go ahead and encrypt your whole network. So if they're successful, Bryce, you're saying they're successful and there are groups and organizations and these are their full-time jobs. Companies must be paying this ransom. So if they are, what kind of dollars are they paying? I would hope they're not they're not paying millions and millions, but I don't think somebody's doing this to make a hundred dollars. And and what are the consequences then after that? You know, do they really give you your data back? Do they not? I mean, those that's several questions there. 
but it's kind of tied up in if they're successful, they must be gaining something here. Yeah, Laura. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of these attacks are very successful. And the, the reason why is because most of the victims are presented with a false choice, right? It's either, you know, you, you can rebuild your systems from backup. And many, or many victims either don't have backups or they don't have complete backups or they're missing something, right? And so that's not really a viable option for them. Or in some cases, they may have complete backups that will just take them five months or a really long time to get everything restored. So it's basically ransomware victims are just in a position where it's just easier to pay. It's cheaper from a from time and materials, from a staff perspective. And a lot of times, actually, for a, a commercial entity or a business entity, they have cyber liability insurance. And that insurer will step in to pay most of the ransom. This is so common, they actually have an established process for engaging with the attackers. And they've actually nicknamed a lot of the attackers now, too. So they know, like, oh, yeah, we've worked with this group before. Oh, um, interesting. And... As far as, you know, will you get your data back? Is that really something that happens? Most of the time, yes, you will get your data back. It is still a gamble. It is definitely still a gamble. And it's not a gamble that should be taken lightly. And a lot of the, again, a lot of the insurance companies that work with the larger crime organizations, <laughs> uh, they they kind of have a, a an inkling of, oh, God, we've worked with these people before. And yeah, you'll get your data back. It just may be a couple of days. Or they know, yeah, no, we paid this guy, you know, last week and didn't hear, hear anything. Um, but you know, what's interesting is uh, part of the whole success of this ransomware scheme is that the criminal organizations, the people running these ransomware operations are holding each other accountable. So if someone stops delivering, a lot of the other criminals will, you know, get together and either push them out or or marginalize them or stop. A lot of times they're actually buying services from each other. Like one guy writes the new ransomware and the guy in charge of working with the insurance company. It's kind of a whole pretty mature, like I said, almost businesses. They're holding each other accountable because they they need everyone to believe that you're going to get your data back. Otherwise, there's no incentive to pay, right? If you only got your data back 10% of the time, no one would pay. But there is a huge downside to paying. The upside is you get your stuff back. Your systems come back online. There's a couple of huge downsides. One, you really don't know who you're paying. Again, a lot of these organizations have become large and complex. And it's difficult to know, okay, just because you worked with this guy to pay the ransom, you don't really know who they're turning around and, and paying on the backside. And so you could be funding some really awful and horrible criminal organizations that do way worse things than just ransomware. And in fact, that's the FBI's primary piece of advice is we do not recommend that you pay criminals. But they also at the same time recognize that that is sometimes the only choice you have. And another couple downsides are uh, there's nothing stopping another attacker if you pay the ransom. There's nothing stopping another attacker from coming in, you know, a day later, a week later, a month later, and exploiting the same vulnerability that was used to uh, infect your systems in the first place. Very critical that after a ransomware attack that there is a 
analysis done to understand how the infection occurred in the first place and to make sure that we're, that, that has been dealt with and can't be used again. I know that was a, a lot of information, and so I really want Sean's, uh, I would really like Sean for the way to weigh in on, on some of this. Yeah, and, and there's no guarantee that even if they give you your data back, that they don't have a copy of it and it's going to get out there anyway. So, you know, essentially this is one of those things that we've kind of done to ourselves through bad security hygiene, bad best practices, thinking it won't ever happen to us. Uh, and, you know, like Bryce said, this is why the U.S. government doesn't negotiate with terrorists. This is this is the reason, because now there's a, a cottage industry around. I don't even call it a cottage industry. It's, it's a full-blown enterprise now where these government-sponsored hackers, state-sponsored terrorists, they are making money off of essentially un unwitting innocent victims because they know they can. And, you know, Bryce mentioned the cyber insurance policies a little bit from my practical experience with, you know, certain organizations and certain insurance companies and the people they have on retainer. I, I get it, especially if you're a large organization. It's great to have insurance. It's great to have backup. It's great to have help. But just that process might kill you as a business because it, it literally takes so long for all those different parties to get on the same page and to do the research and do the investigation and, you know, wait for responses from the attackers. And it is just a, a weeks, if not months long process while you're essentially out of business if you don't have backups. So from my perspective, the money you spend up front on this, protecting against it, making sure you've got good backups, make sure you can recover those backups in a reasonable amount of time. And for home users, this is a slam dunk. Back up your pictures, back up your Word documents, back up anything important, throw it on a flash drive, throw it in a drawer, do that every couple of weeks or once a month. And worst case scenario, you're out a couple of weeks of pictures or something. But uh, if, if you don't do that, you're no better off than uh, a giant company that's got, you know, terabytes of data that are, that's all encrypted. And for the bigger organizations, spend the money on security. Do it up front. There's, I, I mean, I, I can't even count the amount of dollars spent between paying an insurance policy, paying those subcontractors, time involved in recovery, paying that staff, rebuilding everything from, I, I mean, it's just on and on and on. So that most of the time that upfront cost is going to be significantly lower than what happens after an attack. Well, this is really interesting because it could it could be really scary. I mean, okay, so let let me soften that up a little bit from there. Uh, I'm not saying in any way that you should not have a cyber insurance policy. What I'm saying is is that there are are two ways to go about this. Either you spend the money up front, you have your own security policies in place, you have your own best practices around backup, recovery, DR, things like that. And when I say DR, for those that don't know, that's disaster recovery. The other word is BCP, which is business continuity. If you have all that stuff in place, you probably don't need the Cadillac of cyber insurance co coverage. Although you definitely wanna have some coverage 
in case there are gaps. Certainly for organizations that don't have everything in place, it's very valuable to have that because you certainly don't want, you don't want to be spending that money out of your own pocket if, if you can afford to have an insurance policy pay for it. it. It's important to understand just like auto insurance, there's different levels of cyber insurance coverage that you can get. And it's really important to talk to your, your policy provider, talk to your insurance company and work with them to determine what level of insurance it is you need and then kind of go from there. And a, a lot of times, you know, if you know you're not up to speed on a lot of practices, get the good policy and then work back from there. Spend, spend money internally, spend it on your own security program, spend it on your own best practices, and then maybe you can reduce the amount of policy that you have. Okay, that's really good advice. That's real good advice. Thank you. What you're talking about is big business, obviously, and it's very scary. But, you know, you mentioned also, I think you kind of gave us, Sean, a, a tie-in to what we're going to talk about next week, and that is cybersecurity hygiene. So first, we talked about what cybersecurity is. Today, we talked about some of these really scary trends with the caveat that it doesn't have to be so scary and detrimental if we do what we're supposed to up front. And if we're, you know, even from the person who sits behind their computer who really isn't working in the security department, but just to do their very best every day in being cognizant of it and letting our security teams make sure that we've got the backups, we've got everything up front, so that if something were to happen at our company or anyone's company, that that layer has all been taken care of. Then we can just deal with the issue at hand. So I think that was a really, really good segue into next week. I also, just for our listeners, I just want to share again some of those new buzzwords we heard today. Password harvesting. We heard social engineering. We heard voicishing. How did you say that, Bryce? Voice. Vishing. Oh, vishing. There you go. (laughs) There you go. Vishing and smishing for the text. Okay, so new terms we heard today. I hope uh, I hope our listeners found this as interesting as I did. And I'm really glad that we're doing this series because I think it's bringing a lot of really good, important information to the surface and, and rightfully so during Cybersecurity Month. And for our listeners, next we're going to be talking about cybersecurity hygiene for home and for work. So we're going to talk a little bit about the consumer then too. I'm Laura Franco, and I want to thank both Sean and Bryce. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Laura. Sounds good. Thanks, Laura. So that's all we have today. Thank you for joining us on Healthcare Highwire. We will talk to you next time. So you enjoyed this podcast episode. Click like, share it with your friends, leave us a comment, and let us know what you liked best about it. Thanks for listening to Healthcare Highwire. Legal disclaimer, Life Care Services LLC is not engaged in rendering legal advice. Therefore, any information provided in this podcast, although intended to be correct, is also not intended to replace or supersede the advice of your legal counsel. Also, thank you to Ben Sounds for the music provided in this podcast. Mm-hmm.